Good morning, everybody. Thank you, uh, Karen Nichols, for leading prayer time. Um, it was great. And man, thank you so much to the worship team this morning. Jason Milani, Colin McGue, Amy Miller. What an incredible set. And you're going to hear more from that, them in a few uh, minutes. Um, man, I just love that multiple guitar sound. That just, my soul comes alive when I hear that. And that's just so worshipful. Love it. And then the incorporation of, you know, new tunes, old, you know, hymns, and then the U2, man, just the perfect blend. Thank you so much. Um, so good morning, everybody. Uh, we're continuing. Good morning to, to everybody that's in the room, everybody that's joining us online. Um, I love that. Also, I love that, uh, that verse that, uh, that, that Jason mentioned that, um, from, from John 4, uh, this, this truth that, that, that those who worship Jesus worship Him in spirit, spirit and in truth, uh, regardless of the mountain that we're on. And so uh, some of us are going to be online. We're entering into this hybrid season of uh, kind of like hybrid worship where, where some of us are going to be here and some of us are going to be joining us online. But in the Holy Spirit, we're gathering together. We're a one church and we're worshiping Him this morning. So I wanted to share with you a, a, a story off the bat. About 10 years ago, got a phone call one Saturday morning. That was, I would call, I would say it was terrifyingly affirming. Terrifyingly affirming. Phone call was from Jason Poling, New Hope's pastor at the time. I don't recall the specifics, but evidently something injury-related had happened that left him unable to preach the following day, and he wanted to know if I could fill in last minute. Nowadays, that probably wouldn't have been too much of an ask, uh, but at the time, I had only preached a few times, and I hadn't started seminary yet. Uh, back then, when Jason asked me to preach, he'd usually give me a few months heads up, and I'd take the opportunity to spend those months studying that one particular text and then writing the sermon. But now, with only like 24 hours to go, my entire approach was out the door. I was affirmed, yes, but I was also terrified. Uh, the text happened to be the story of Noah and the flood, the same one that we're going to look at today. Uh, we're currently in a series, a Lent series called Rebellion, which is looking at the, the Bible stories that we find in Genesis 3 through 11. So you see Adam and Eve, and you see Cain and Abel last week, and then Noah and the flood today, and then in a few weeks we'll look at the Tower of Babel. What we've discovered is that these stories are more than history, and they are greater than myth. The best word to describe them, I think, is truth, because in many ways they continue to be played out, told and retold again and again and again. Today's story is one of the longest ones in this particular section of the Bible. The, the story of, of Adam and Eve's rebellion only takes up one chapter. Uh, the tale of Cain and Abel doesn't even take up a whole chapter. It takes up you know, almost about a chapter. And then the Tower of Babel, that story is only nine verses long. But, but the tale of Noah takes up four whole chapters and kind of spills out in either direction. So that's why we're going to take two weeks with it. When we finish today, the, the, the story will be left unresolved, which is an important theme during the Lent season. I mean, has your story ever felt unresolved, like you were 
waiting patiently for the Lord to work. And you're not quite sure what it's going to look like when He does, but you know that one day He will lift you up out of that miry clay. You know that you see the realities of the darkness in front of you and you're waiting patiently for Him, but at the moment, life feels unresolved. This might be a story for you today. I think that's where we'll leave Noah. Uh, at the end of the sermon today, we're going to see him, we're going to leave him adrift at sea, wondering how on earth God is going to move this story forward. The story of Noah is an odd story, and frankly, we've done odd things with it, from children's stories to Steve Carell movies. Uh, we find the bulk of the story in Genesis 6 through 9, and if you read the story, you know, front to back, you'll, you'll probably notice, one of the things you'll probably notice as you work through the Noah story is that it seems a bit choppy. The details mentioned in one verse seem to be repeated and even kind of slightly altered with different language a few verses later. Um, this is probably because uh, the story is told from at least two different perspectives or at least from two different writers. Um, because it's an old story, it's impossible for us to say with any kind of degree of certainty, but most scholars, most Bible scholars would agree that what we have here in these chapters is, is some mixture of early uh, Israel tradition and, and later Israel tradition. And that's okay. That's okay for two reasons. First, it's okay because Jesus took this story seriously and uh, he would have basically had it in its current form. And Frankly, you know, as it's been said before, if, if a guy can predict his own death and resurrection and pull it off, we listen to him. Um, it's also okay because it's not uncommon for the Bible to give us the same story from multiple perspectives. In fact, in terms of ancient stories that have been passed down through the centuries, the presence of varying perspectives is actually seen as an argument in favor of authenticity and importance rather than evidence for its dismissal. If multiple witnesses tell the exact same story the exact same way, that's decent evidence that they collaborated. But, but if the stories vary slightly, it shows that the event was seen and verified by, by multiple individuals. Now, that's not to say that historic accuracy is our primary objective when studying the story of Noah, but it does tell us that something about this story goes deep in Israel's identity. And that makes us want to pay close attention and ask good questions. Have you, did you know that? That you can ask questions of the Bible. It's an excellent thing to do. That, that, that the Bible is a book that helps us understand how to ask good questions sometimes. So that actually, by the way, was the approach that I took 10 years ago. Back to that Saturday morning when I got the call from Jason to preach the next day. I called the sermon trying to reason with hurricane season because I'm a Jimmy Buffett fan. And I opened the story and I, and I read through it and I outlined it and I started asking questions. And when I came to the pulpit the next day, I actually did the same thing. I told the story as it was written and I gave everyone my outline and, and then I opened the floor to questions. I brought out this whiteboard, and, and we all had this brainstorming session. I had, we spent a good 10 minutes that morning just jotting down questions because I wanted everyone to get the questions off their chest. I just wanted us to confess our questions. Nothing was out of bounds. Did it really happen? How did Noah build the ark? 
Why did God save only one family? How did he get the animals on the ark? Have you ever attempted by your own power to get an elephant to do anything? How did that work? Does the ark itself still exist? Was it the whole world that was flooded or was that just hyperbole? And the biggest question of all, did God really kill all those people? The truth is that the answers to those questions and more are unknown. We don't know. We can read commentaries written by very smart people. We can look at them and we can make educated guesses. But at the end of the day, we can't say for certain how a 600-year-old man brought lions, tigers, and bears onto an ark. Sometimes you need to hear a church leader say, I don't know. But here's the good news. My suspicion is that our questions can often tell us more than the answers ever could. For me, when I sit with a text like this that seems sort of ridiculous and questions start to roll out of me, I know that it would be wise for me to kind of do personal business with the questions that are, that are on the forefront of my heart. What does it tell me about myself if my primary questions reading through this story were logistical in nature? There's nothing wrong with logistics. We need people with scientific minds who think analytically, but I do think that it could be revealing of my character for me to ask myself what questions were important to me and why. Like, like Thomas, would I be so focused on the details of the tree, let me, let me see the marks in his hand, that I miss the forest of Jesus in front of me, right? There is so much that we don't know about this story of Noah. But what we do know is the story itself. The story is thousands of years old, and it was included in the Torah in order to speak. Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Um, it was included in Torah in order to speak to Israel's identity and help her understand the broad picture of humanity and Israel's place in it. There's something about the human condition that is in this story. So, so let's have a look at it. You can uh, look at Genesis 5, actually, for an instance. There, there, there gives us, in Genesis 5, we see, we see a bit of genealogy connecting uh, Cain to, to Noah, uh, and we don't have too much to work on. One thing that the, that the Noah story doesn't often get, one thing about the Noah, Noah story that doesn't often get mentioned is the statement made by Lamech, Noah's father, after his son was born. He says, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed... This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the toil of our hands. Noah's name means rest and comfort. And evidently Lamech is hoping for some reprieve from the curse that had, that had infected his family. Specifically, what is stressed here is the increased disharmony between humanity and the soil. Humanity and, we might say, creation itself. The role of agriculture in these early stories can't be stressed enough. Just as we wrestle with these stories to understand the realities of our world today, the original audience might have been asking big questions about the natural environment God had placed them in. Agriculture had played a role in these stories that we've, that we've already seen. Um, and now we're about to hear a story about a natural disaster that would have destroyed the whole world 
of the people who lived through it. Floods are scary enough in our own day. Imagine being in the ancient world and living an entire life where you barely left a a 12-mile radius from the place of your birth. Floods would have been devastating, and that's why we see them in in ancient stories uh, such as the Bible and, and the Epic of Gilgamesh, right? So entering into Genesis 6, we hear that humanity is starting to multiply in greater numbers. We, we start seeing more and more people uh, inhabit this earth that God had created. And then God intends to limit human life expectancy. He says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120. So what we see here, just as there is an increasing disharmony between humanity and the soil, we also see an di- increasing disharmony between humanity and God. So, chapter 6, verse 5, beginning of verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were, was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry I have made them. But Noah, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them. I will destroy them with the earth. uh, With the earth. I will destroy humanity with the earth along with it. So, the fundamental wickedness or sin here in view is violence. We might have expected it to be sexual promiscuity or idolatry, both of which will feature prominently in the rest of the story of Genesis and, frankly, the rest of the Bible. We will get to that stuff. But here, here the problem is violence, violence that is in God's sights. When Cain killed Abel, God told Cain that his brother's blood cried out from the ground, again, stressing some sort of connection between murder, blood, soil, and consequences. The immediate consequence of Cain's murder was that he was told that that when he worked the ground, it would no longer yield to him its strength. He would be alienated from both the soil and from God. As the author of life, God would be the primary source of life itself, and it stands the reason that the soil, soil would represent, would, would also be seen as a source of life. Again, connecting it to Adam's sin, it was, it was from the sweat of his brow that he would eat his bread. We don't have all of the answers, but you can see here that creation itself is affected by corruption, by the corruption of human depravity. Several uh, times now, we've seen the connection 
of, of humanity's rebellion working to place distance not only between them and God, but also between humanity and their home. It's as if the story of rebellion is creating a crisis that is making creation itself collapse back into chaos. We're told that God saw the intention of humanity's collective heart and it was only evil continually. The rebellion had spread quickly like, like an infection, like a virus. And now it was to the point where God himself, we see God himself in, in chapter 6 of the Bible, regretting that he ever put man, humanity on the earth. It's even spelled out that he would blot out man from the face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things and birds, because God, God was sorry he created them. You see, it's like a, it's like a reversal of the creation narrative. This word regret, theologians explain the word regret, or actually the word could actually also be translated repentance. Um, they, they explain this word regret by pointing out that, that it's what's called a, an anthropomorphism. It's a big word, but um, that is attributing a human activity to God in order to put words in the story that the reader would understand. We see this all over the Bible, right? Jesus especially used it all the time. We're told here that the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And that it, it grieved him to his heart. There was something about our Father God that was grieving when he looked at, at, at humanity. We might say that it, it grieved him to his core. He regrets having put humanity on this earth because he sees the wickedness of humanity and their evil thoughts. He sees the violence that they are taking up arms against one another. We're told in verse 11 that the whole earth was corrupt in God's sight and that it was filled with violence. Again, violence seems to be in special view here. Now, it's interesting that the author speaks in kind of, you know, generalities and broad strokes, right? God saw the wickedness of man. He wants to blot out mankind. He wants to blot out animals. And then the story, like, zeroes in. And we see one guy, one man in his family who finds, finds favor in the sight of the Lord. Again, this is something we see again and again and again in the Bible. The Bible gives us big picture descriptions, uses big sweeping terms, kind of talking, looking at the forest rather than the trees, and then goes, but this person, this person was different. And God is about to show us something very special through them. Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Daniel, Esther, Nehemiah, Mary, Peter, Paul, all of them found themselves used by God for such a time as this. You know, and I hope that gives you, like, encouragement in the midst of an odd story, in the midst of a difficult story. Sidebar, what if we talked for a few hours about everything that's wrong with the world today? We could talk about the pandemic, and we could talk about global poverty and the immigration crisis. We could talk about refugees and the challenges of systemic violence. We could talk about nuclear weapons and treaties and treaties about nuclear weapons. And we could talk about drug addiction, sex addiction, gang violence, economic injustice, struggling schools, divisive politics, economic disparity, and the fact that there simply aren't enough Chipotles near Catonsville. 
Those are the cards that we have been dealt with, friends. The infection of rebellion continues to spread. The question is, are you going to go with the flow? Are you, or are you willing to let God use you for such a time as this? All of those names that I mentioned a minute ago, none of them were perfect by a long shot. But God did these amazing things through them, and I believe, I believe that He's calling His church to, to attention. I believe that He can and will do amazing things through us if we follow His lead. Sidebar over, back to the story. Noah. Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord, and God said to him, well, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And he tells Noah to build a teva. I'm hoping that at some point in 2021, we'll see a return of dinner parties. If you want to be a smarty pants at your next dinner party, you can point out that the word teva, that is typically translated ark, here in Genesis, is translated with another word in the next book of the Bible. In Exodus 2, we see Moses' mother making a teva, commonly translated basket, daubing it with bitumen and pitch, and placing it in a river where it is then picked up downstream by none other than the daughter of Pharaoh. So, God will thus in both instances protect His people from the violent waters by sealing his representative in a teva. God tells Noah that he intends to destroy the earth by, by flooding it, and that Noah's responsibility will be to create an ark, to create a teva that will, that will hold his family as well as a multitude of animals. What we see here is the difference between cleaning and renovating. When we clean a house, we kind of carefully walk around the valuable items while, you know, picking up trash and cleaning surfaces, and we put misplaced things, items where they, where they belong, and we kind of freshen up the space. But if we were going to renovate the house, we would actually probably take those valuable items and we would move them all to the side entirely in order that we could really uh, be able to break things down and build them back up, you know, and then bring back the valuable pieces of furniture after we're done. So, have a look at, at Genesis chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all of the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and the rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them enter the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah two and two of all flesh in which there were, was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. And the flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth, 
And the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. And Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed for 150 days. A phrase. The Lord shut him in. That's been working on me this week. Noah and his family were sealed in the teva. This human embodiment of hope. The person in whom God would move the story forward is protectively sealed while the destruction rages outside. We're told that the ark rose high above the earth, while the waters prevailed, the ark floated above the chaos, while, while all flesh died that moved along the earth, birds and livestock and beasts and swarming creatures and all of humanity. The waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days, while Noah and his family and the multitude of animals were sealed, were sealed in the ark adrift at sea with, with the chaos raging outside, wondering what is God going to do from here? And that's where we'll leave the story for today. We're going to pick back up next week, but for now, just, just a few thoughts in closing. First, if your heart aches at the idea of God destroying human beings with a violent flood, I think that is exactly where God wants you to be. We're clearly told at the beginning of this tale that God's heart ached at violence that humanity inflicted on each other. We see violence sometimes even dictated by God throughout the Bible. The hard truth is there that it's all God's creation and He can do anything He wants with it, including going to the cross. But there are lots of things that we could say about each of those instances. But, but, but here's the point. If, if something in your heart aches, if you are grieved to the core at the thought of God destructively destroying humanity with a flood, I have to believe that, that, that that's something that's coming from a Christ-like place in your heart. I think that's something of Christ in you. Like God is saying, oh, you hate violence, do you? And in that vein, second, the, the phrase... The Lord shut him in. See, that, especially here in Lent, that, that reminds me of another image. Instead of a representative being sealed in a teva, in being kept alive in order for a future plan of, a, of deliverance to be accomplished, this other image that's in my head is a, is a story, is an image of a, of a dead man being sealed at a tomb for a reason that rhymes with the story of Noah and the flood. And instead of it 
one family being sealed and kept alive to move creation forward. Instead, in Jesus, we see God become flesh and die a sacrificial death that we deserved, and then He is sealed in His own sort of teva, in a tomb that God raised, and then in that tomb, God raised Him from the dead in order that the whole world might be reconciled to God. While the the chaos was raging outside the tomb, in the tomb, we see the first fruits of the resurrection. We see the first fruits of new creation. That is the story of Lent. If your heart aches at the thought that God would destroy the world with a flood, what if we reverse that? And now I show you the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that That in that tomb, in his tomb, in his teva, God is doing a work of new creation. Just watch what God is going to do.